Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. December is upon us, and we're making merry this festive season by discovering new mixed drinks and getting the stories behind some iconic cocktails. First, we learn about Dick Bradsell the late great British bartender who invented several modern cocktail classics. His daughter, Bea Bradsell, joins us in the studio to talk about her father's legacy in hospitality. Then we hear from authors Sue Strachan and Tim McNally. As part of the iconic New Orleans cocktail series from LSU Press, Sue and Tim have written books exploring Café Brulot and the Sazerac, respectively. And finally, looking to bring the party this season, but want to hold off on the booze? That's where Lauren Chitwood of Spiritless comes in. She tells us about the development of an alcohol-free line of liquor that is a dead ringer for the real thing, when mixed in a glass. We've got cocktails for every taste on this week's Louisiana Eats. Hi, I'm Bea Bradsell from the Drink Cabinet, and um, my father was Dick Bradsell, the creator of the Espresso Martini and Bramble. B. Bradsell's famous father, Richard, better known as Dick Bradsell, was a pioneering force in the UK cocktail scene. He created several brand new cocktails, most notably the espresso martini. Sadly, a brain tumor claimed Dick's life in 2016 when he was a mere 56. But his legacy lives on through B. and his famous cocktails. He had this crazy ability that I've seen in very few bartenders since where he had a great memory for flavor. So he could taste something and know the drink that he wanted it to be in. And he could basically work out in his head the flavor that he wanted. And he he just would create the recipe in his head rather than playing around and doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. He would just design it in his head and then he had very good muscle memory for where everything was in the bar. So he would then just grab everything, put it into the shaker and out would come this flavor. And I would see brand ambassadors come into the bar and bring him new products all the time. And just he would come out with these incredible drinks just immediately and it's also how he liked to start every shift he would make a fresh lemonade because you you know how to balance the rest of your menu because you know what your lemon juice and your sugar is like that day and you know how it's working within so you know how to rebalance everything that day because you've got that base ready to go 
For people who may not know who Dick Bradsell was, in many ways, he's sort of the Dale DeGroff of Great Britain, isn't he? Yeah, that's a comparison that gets made quite a lot. Um, so there wasn't really a kind of mainstream cocktail scene in the UK before my dad came along. There were beautiful um, hotel bars, um, but you know your average person on the street would not have any um, access to cocktails at all. You had a few members bars and things that were starting to do them, but it was very much wine at dinner, beer and pink gins at the pub. And then my dad kind of didn't see a reason why everyone couldn't have had them. So he he made it his mission to really bring cocktails to the people. And now you can't move for cocktail bars in the UK. What year was that that his mission began? He moved to London in the late 70s. And that's kind of, he really became passionate about it around then. But when he got some of the ropes down and started really getting enough knowledge to start doing his own thing was probably in around 1982, 1983. If people were to identify him with one drink, it would be the espresso martini. So the espresso martini definitely today is the drink that he's become best known for. I mean, at least in the UK, it got big in 2016 and then over here much more recently. But he created it decades before it really got famous. I've got it down to, I think it's about 1984. It was created at Bart called the Soho Brasserie, um, which is right in the heart of Soho, which is Old Compton Street, which if you've ever been to Soho, is the main road through it. So he was working at kind of the new, newest, trendiest bar. Um, and at the time, David Bowie was filming a um, film called Absolute Beginners, and it was filmed in the street. So like anyone that was anyone was coming to Soho to try and get a glimpse of David Bowie, as you would. And then most of the cast, they had like lots of walk-on scenes, just everyone was around and they were very busy and they'd had a new coffee machine installed. And what happens when you have a new bit of kit installed is no one knows how to use it and everything becomes a mess. So the bar was absolutely covered in coffee grinds because they were still working what they were out what they were doing. And then a young model which was a model he took to the grave. He never told anyone what the name of the model was. Um, but a young um, model came in and asked for a drink to wake her up and uh, <laughs> swear word her up. <laughs> <laughs> With the bar already covered in coffee um, and vodka being the trendiest spirit of the time, the gin renaissance had not quite happened yet. Um, he basically threw coffee liqueur espresso a little bit of sugar and um, vodka into a shaker, shook it up and poured it out on the rocks. And that was the original vodka espresso. Quite a little bit different to what we know today. Um, it took him a few more years. He he took it with him to kind of every bar he worked at. He knew it was a flavor profile that worked. He knew people enjoyed it. So in probably about 1999 was when he finally found his perfect recipe, which is... Um, the espresso martini that we know and love today, which was a shaken drink served straight up with some espresso beans as garnish. One of the more fascinating things I discovered about Dick Bradsell was that he occasionally liked to dress as a woman. I asked B to give her thoughts on her father's apparel choices. I think he was he was a rebel. He was an anarchist, a self-described anarchist. Um, he liked to shock people and 
do the most shocking thing he could, which quite often was dressing as a woman. Um, no kind of wondering about his gender. He was, you know, very happily a man, but liked the experience of dressing up as a woman. And he liked the response that he got from people. And that was a conversation starter. Also, like, he could kind of hide his own personality behind this big conversation. So he could, he was a very, very private person working in a very public field. And he, he loved creating the party, but he also kept himself very much to himself. So having this, being so boisterous and flamboyant and out there in this dress kind of almost created a little bubble for him. Um, he also loved creating spaces for people that were a little lost and wanted to dress up. Like so, he, a couple of bars we worked at, he created these bar nights that people could come to and have a safe space. It was a mad world to grow up into, but kind of I didn't know any better. It was just kind of what I grew up in, so I always knew it. Oh, B, wouldn't <laughs> he just fit in New Orleans? I think he would absolutely love it. When people talk about dad, a lot of what comes up is the drinks because he did have so many amazing, unique drinks. But for him and a lot of people that worked with him, the drinks were just a very small element of a larger experience. He was curating this night out for people. So always having the perfect playlist, how to kind of watch a room and know exactly what was going on at all times. Think about someone's entire journey. Is there a tube strike today? Is there a problem with the buses? Is there some building works that they've got to walk around that they've then had to have a really annoying journey to get here? What's happening at the door? What's happening at every single stage before they sit down? Is that that whole day comes into it. And he is like, that's kind of how his mind went. It was like the drinks were such a small part of the whole experience. Incredible. What... An amazing talent and such a wonderful story. I'm so grateful for you coming to speak with us. Thank you, B. Thank you, Poppy. It's so lovely to be here. That was B. Bradzell from the drink cabinet and daughter of the infamous cocktail creator, Dick Bradzell. What is treacle? And what does that have to do with Dick Bradsell? Stay tuned, and we'll tell you all about it when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, Synonymous with seafood, straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. 
If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is treacle, and what does that have to do with Dick Bradsell? Treacle is the British name for what Americans know as blackstrap molasses. You Harry Potter fans may remember treacle tart as the young wizard's favorite dessert. Dick Bradsell made a play on those sweet childhood memories when he created the treacle, which is basically a dark rum old-fashioned with a float of apple juice on top. Dick preferred using a dark brown apple juice. It's a perfect drink for any holiday gathering and one I'm guessing you'll love. You'll find a recipe for Dick Bradsell's treacle on our website, poppytooker.com. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. This is Sue Strachan. I'm the author of The Cafe Brulo. Starting in 2020, LSU Press began publishing a series of books exploring iconic New Orleans cocktails, with each volume focused on one classic drink. Sue Strachan's contribution to the series focuses on Café Brulot, a popular incendiary after-dinner drink served only in some of New Orleans' finest restaurants. Sue joined us in the studio to discuss Café Brulot, its history, and how it's made. So LSU Press approached me about doing uh, one of the cocktails in its cocktail series, and they gave me a list, and Café Brulot jumped out at me for reasons that if anyone has uh, ever sampled it or seen it be made before, it's, it's theatrical. It smells great. It smells of Christmas. It smells like cloves. It smells of, you know, it's fun, celebration. It's a great way to end a meal at some of the old line restaurants in New Orleans. Well, you have a translation of Cafe Brulo. For people who don't know what that means, how does that translate? It's incendiary coffee, and it is only incendiary if you add alcohol to it. So um, there were some rumors of its origins that I've seen in some of my research that it was invented during Prohibition, which didn't, to me, made no sense, because you need the alcohol to light it on fire. And not only that, but it was being served in New Orleans for way too long before Prohibition. So who knows who starts and tells that lore? And it keeps on going on and on, and so uh, I'm glad to be able to correct the record. I think that you and I can definitely agree that the popularity of this drink, if not the drink itself, can pretty much center back to Antoine mm-hmm. Alciator and his son Jules. Yes. Jules was the uh, marketing 
mind behind it. Oh, yes, he was. He really was the one. I mean, Café Brulo Diablique, you know, added sort of this kind of like fun flair to it. And that's when I think he started designing the cups and the saucers with the devil on the side and, and the saucer. And then you have the stands, which had the, the, the stand legs are of this devil as well. And you can see that at Antoine's. All that is Antoine's. When Jules was alive, you know, it was Belle Epoque, and it had, they, you know, you would see a lot of advertisements of that kind of devilish persona. And I think it sort of went along with what was going on at that time. So let's get down to actually what goes into the Café Brulo. Well, you start with a brandy, and then you have cinnamon, lemons, and oranges, and sugar, cloves, coffee, and an orange liqueur. Or a Kirschwasser. Kirschwasser? Yes, Kirschwasser. Where did you find the Kirschwasser reference? Well, the interesting, the first time I did was when I was doing research, and I was looking at videos, and Cocktail Kingdom... Uh, Dale DeGroff was making it, and he added some Kirschwasser to it. And then I asked Lisa Blunt, who's one of the co-owners of Antoine's, I'm like, could it be possible that they use Kirschwasser? And she thought about it, and she said, yes. So I said, let's do it. Let's try it. And, uh, you know, Charles Carter, who's an amazing, um, I think, third-generation waiter at Antoine's, did the taste test for me. And Kirschwasser, which is a cherry liqueur, added a really lovely, smooth flavor to it, and I actually prefer it to having the orange liqueur in it. It's so wonderful that in our historical restaurants, this is still such a celebratory tradition. Where can people find Café Brulot these days? Well, in the French Quarter, you can find it at Antoine's, Arnaud's, Broussard's, and Galatois. Uptown, you can find it at Commander's Palace. And what are the differences that you find from place to place? Some use cognac instead of brandy. Some use dark French dark roast coffee. Uh, Arnaud's likes to use coffee and chicory. And then Arnaud's also does a really special presentation in which they take an orange and they peel it so it's a spiral. And, you know, the end is still attached to the orange. And then they stud it with the cloves. And so when the, the mixture is lit, in the, the, whoever's making it takes a big old fork, you know, like a barbecue fork, puts it in there, puts it above the bowl. And then they take the flaming mixture of the ladle and pour it down the orange peel. And the and orange the cloves, cloves, they spark like fireworks. It's so exciting. It's really great to see that and everything kind of – it adds a little extra pop to the whole, you know, presentation. Well – It's a beautiful, perfect little book for any New Orleans lover, any cocktail lover, and anybody who just enjoys some good Café Brulot. Sue, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Sue Strachan, author of The Café Brulot. According to legend, in 1838, New Orleans pharmacist Antoine Amade Peychaud was crafting medicine when he combined his personal bitters recipe with readily available French brandy. Served to his clientele at his Royal Street Apothecary in New Orleans, this concoction 
would eventually become the city's official cocktail, the Sazerac. As part of the iconic New Orleans cocktail series from LSU Press, Tim McNally has written a book dedicated to the history of that famous drink. His first exposure to the Sazerac came at Antoine's restaurant, where members of his Mardi Gras crew of Hermes would eat and drink every Friday before Mardi Gras. And it took me a long time to figure out that it wasn't just a Mardi Gras drink. When I started to do the research on Sazerac, which was many years ago, long before the book was even uh, on my radar, I was intrigued with, first of all, the mechanics of putting the Sazerac cocktail together properly. Not many cocktails have mechanics. You know, you put some ice in a shaker and throw a little booze in there and some citrus juice and a little sugar and shake it up and then serve it out. That's not how the Sazerac is done at all. The Sazerac takes a moment to fix, as you well know, Poppy, to do it properly. You fill a glass with ice and you set that aside and let that glass chill down. And then you get into the addition of ingredients to another glass. You take the absinthe and put it at the bottom of a glass toss the glass up in the air, twirl it, so the absinthe coats the glass. Then you pour out the excess absinthe, and you start putting the other ingredients into the glass, and then you set it over uh, into the glass that you've had ice in, and you've got a chilled glass on your hand, ready to receive the Sazerac final product. Well, it's really more of a ceremony. It, it truly yeah. is. It's a, yeah. It is a special occasion in and of itself. And one of the things I loved about your book was the way you personalized Antoine Amadie Pecho. Tell us about uh, Mr. Pecho and his particulars. Well, his family, uh, they were from Haiti. Uh, they were from the French Caribbean. His dad was also a scientist, more or less, and they came to New Orleans to uh, assist with agriculture and he took an interest in becoming a pharmacist. Now, at that time, pharmacists were finally licensed. Anybody could be a pharmacist, but if you had a license, you were something very special. He then uh, purchased this building where he put his uh, pharmacy in the 400 block of Royal Street, right in the middle of the French Quarter. And uh, today, that is a used gun store, historic gun shop. But that is where Peychaud had his pharmacy and uh, people would come in. It was very unusual in those days. In fact, it never happened that a cocktail had a name. That's another thing that makes Sazerac so different is that you went into a bar and had their cocktail, but it didn't need to be named. That's what you went into the bar to get. That was their cocktail. And uh, Pecho named his cocktail out of one of the main ingredients, which was cognac that he used, Sazerac Fogéfi cognac was a very popular, not high-end, but just a very popular common cognac of the day. And that's where the drink actually got its name from, interestingly. Interestingly, it has kept that name, even though along the way, all the way to today, cognac is not a part of the drink from the way many people prepare it. It's only recently that the Sazerac Cognac, which is still a family operation in the Cognac region of France, it's only recent that that Cognac has returned to us as a real product. 
I have to say, a Sazerac made with cognac is a lot more mellow and perhaps um, easily drinkable than one of the rye whiskey, more typical concoctions. And that's one of the things that interested me because back in the middle to late 1800s, 1880s, uh, there was a phylloxera epidemic in France. It was a, that's a root mouse that destroys the vine, gets in the soil, sucks at the roots, uh, the tendrils of the vine, and uh, takes away all of the sweet juices off the vine. Eventually, the vine dies. And they had that epidemic in France in the late 1880s. We here in New Orleans and also in Paris were accustomed to cognac and other wines, all of which went off the market. So we here in New Orleans substituted a product that we had a lot of, and that was rye whiskey coming down the river from Kentucky and Tennessee. So that went into our version of the Sazerac, but the Sazerac name did not change. And then a few years later, uh, when we had the uh, absinthe misunderstanding, and it always was that, absinthe is a very high alcoholic spirit, but it doesn't drive you crazy. But nevertheless, uh, the PR people that worked for various wineries in France wanted to get their wines back in the public domain. So they then went on a tear to make absinthe, quote, illegal. Absinthe was never illegal, um, but it wasn't allowed. So all along the way, the Sazerac cocktail lost its core ingredient, and then it lost its side ingredient and never changed its name wild it kept on going i found that fascinating now the one of the only only true original ingredients in an absinthe cocktail is peychaud's bitters and you know that's hardly surprising because one of the amazing facts i learned in your book was and i quote from the book by 1853 peychaud was making more income from bitters than from his pharmaceutical services well, he, uh, he hit on something that everybody thought was great. And then he, again, I, I love to have met this guy as a marketer. I thought that what an amazing guy to be a pharmacist. He's as good a marketer as anybody ever was. So he established the brand name of this cocktail, of his bitters, none of which had ever been done before. And, and then he lived around the corner. He lived on, on St. Louis right around the corner from his apothecary shop. And then a couple of American entrepreneurs saw the potential in the drink and they purchased the rights to the drink from him. And they moved the, the public house down into the 300 block of uh, Royal Street where Bevelo uh, is today with their light outlet. And it goes all the way through to Exchange Alley. So it's, a, it's on Royal and Exchange Alley, both sides of the building. The Sazerac really got its um, big boost when the Sazerac Bar got its name. Well, the Sazerac became a, a kind of a generic uh, cocktail. And uh, the Sazerac Bar paid the people who owned the rights to the name Sazerac in order to call their bar Sazerac. The Sazerac Bar, which today is in the uh, Roosevelt Hotel, that isn't where it happened at all. They just said, well, there's a good name for a bar, uh, but it's going to cost us a few bucks. 
but that, that's that is an amazing bar it is. and as we all know we spend more than one moment in that bar huh poppy it's a must do in new orleans absolutely it is that it is that and you go in and have a sazerac and or a ramos gin fizz neither one were invented there but they both do a good job in making them well thank you tim Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. And next time we gather, let's do it over a Sazerac. I'm all over it. You name the time and I'll tell you the place. That was Tim McNally, author of The Sazerac. Coming up next, Master Sommelier Rob Bigelow tells us about wine cocktails that pair well with any holiday gathering. Louisiana Eats returns after a break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, discover world-class culinary flavors on the North Shore this fall. Experience the bounty of the bayou and the rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's easy escape, just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter. Both wine and cocktails add a sophisticated note to any gathering. But if you ask Rob Bigelow, he'll tell you you can have both all at the same time in the same glass. A master sommelier for over two decades, one of Rob's specialties is creating festive cocktails that incorporate fine wines and unexpected flourishes. We invited him into our studio to help us design the ultimate wine cocktail list. Let's start with the very bottom. If you're going to make a cocktail using wine, how fine a wine are you going to select? When it comes to making cocktails with spirits, if you use a low-grade spirit, you're going to have a mediocre cocktail. 
the same applies for wine. If you use a low-grade, low-quality wine, you're going to have a, an inferior wine cocktail. However, as you move up to the medium-grade, same, same thing applies in spirits and wine. If you use a medium-grade, representative, uh, good-tasting, well-made wine or well-made spirit in a cocktail, that's the sweet spot. You're going you're gonna to have a perfect cocktail whether it be from wine or spirits. If you move up the ladder to the high end, you don't use high-end wines or high-end spirits to mix. Those are meant to be consumed neat and on their own. So right in the middle okay. is where you need to be. Well, let's get started. Um, mix us some virtual wine cocktails and explain why you'd use the ingredients and how to treat the whole finished product. Well, like spirits... You need to strive for balance in a wine cocktail. So you're going to use wines that give you balance and flavor. And what is one of the great balancers in a cocktail? Acidity. Sweetness is also part of that triangle as well. So we search for wines like Riesling or Pinot Grigio that have natural acidity and maybe some sweetness in them that's going to help you build a balanced cocktail because that's what the best taste is, balance. So we we advocate for the use of Riesling. Uh, some people use Chardonnay, but you want something with a little acidity. Some uh, full-bodied, full-flavored red wines can uh, make for very good cocktails. Like which varietals would that be? We saw a lot of people using Malbec. Malbec. We, yeah, because it's uh, it's got a, a lot of structure, but it's also got... Uh, great aromatic capabilities and a wonderful fruit profile on the palate that helps uh, build a, a great cocktail. Wonderful. So mix me a drink. Let's start with uh, a little a new Riesling. This is a, a Washington State Riesling as our base. I might add a splash of Fernet Branca. I might also add like a quarter spoon of mezcal or Scots whiskey just for that smoky flavor. I would put uh, just a splash of simple syrup. I might add a little lemon juice to get that balance. And I would include also something like a peach puree mm. to offer some, to play off the peach aromas and flavors that would be in the Riesling offer a little additional sweetness, broaden the palate, make for balance. I would uh, shake that. I would serve it on the rocks. I would float a little more Riesling on the top, and maybe I'd put a little slice of white peach on as the garnish. Well, that sounds beautiful. Okay, mix me a red one. I'll mix you a red one. Let's uh, use our uh, red diamond Malbec. Malbec uh, hails and comes from Argentina. So in using red wines in cocktails, you're not going to use three or four ounces of red wine because that's going to dominate everything else. Again, we're looking for balance. So I would uh, build in a shaker some of the red diamond Malbec. I'd go back to the Scots whiskey because uh, I just love the you know, something peaty and smoky like, you know, just, but just a little bit because a little bit goes a long way. So maybe a little Laphroaig 18. I would muddle some blueberries into the mix because uh, 
One of the uh, fruit characteristics of Malbec is blue fruit. Blueberry, obviously, the boss of the blue fruits. Uh, I would muddle that. I would strain it, and I would top it with either a little club soda or maybe our Michelle Brut sparkling wine to give some effervescence to lift all of those uh, blueberry and Scott's whiskey smoky flavors and to be sort of wrapped in a blanket by the great tastes of the Red Diamond Malbec. Well, that just really sounds delicious to me. So these cocktails that we're virtually mixing here, are these before dinner cocktails? Are these cocktails you drink with dinner? And how would you treat a wine cocktail for after dinner? Well, I think uh, wine cocktails have their application across the board. The consumer trends show that nowadays consumers are looking for lower alcohol cocktails, something to start your night with as an aperitif so that you can drink one or two and not be done with your alcohol consumption for the evening. Something lower in alcohol, light, refreshing. You know, the term aperitif applies across the board for any pre-dinner beverage, anything that's going to pique your appetite or begin, you know, be a social lubricant and uh, uh, make conversation uh, flow at the beginning of the uh, evening or at the beginning of the party. So you can certainly start with lighter, more white wine or sparkling wine-based cocktails to begin, but you can pair wine cocktails all the way up through the meal to and including dessert, just as you would a wine. Obviously, as you build through to entree, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to start to lean more toward the red wine-based cocktails, maybe to go with your, you know, your red meat, protein, dish, whatever. You need something with red wine to stand to that. And then when you get to dessert, then you lean to something that has a little more sweetness to it, like a sweeter style Riesling, maybe again coming back with the sparkling wine or using a, a small measure of port to uh, darken it up and bring it up and you know help finish the evening with something that has some sweetness and uh, is going to help clean your palate and, and satisfy you at the end of your dinner. That was Master Sommelier Rob Bigelow with advice on wine cocktails perfect for any holiday gathering. I am Lauren Chitwood, CEO of Spiritless. At a recent New Orleans food event, as I toured the venue perusing the various booths and their offerings, I came across a representative for a non-alcoholic beverage brand called Spiritless, who offered me an old-fashioned made with their booze-free bourbon. I was skeptical, to say the least. One of the oldest drinks in the cocktail canon the old-fashioned is basically nothing but alcohol. As I took a sip, I discovered strong notes of oak with hints of vanilla and caramel, perfectly elevating the classic drink. I practically did a spit take. A perfect old-fashioned 
that was alcohol-free? I had to know who was behind this and how they were able to remove the alcohol but retain the flavor. I invited company CEO Lauren Chitwood to join us via Zoom so she could educate us on the spiritless concoctions and their process of reverse distillation. So Spiritless was started by three women. We were working in the beverage alcohol industry. We ran an agency that did lots of, we call it experiential marketing. So that was, you know, marketing directly uh, out in the wild. So just as you actually experienced Spiritless yourself. And it was in late 2018 and early 2019, we kept getting requests from brand managers and they were saying, hey, I forgot about this, but it's really important. Could we get something non-alcoholic that's kind of cool? So not water, tea, coffee, juice, Coke, nothing in a can, nothing syrup-based. There was this huge list of qualifiers that they were looking for. And you know, we struggled time and time again to solve the problem in a, in a fun and innovative way. And you know, we pulled up and we said, listen, they keep asking for this stuff. Let's go do that. And so that was really the moment that that Spiritless was born. And you know, it started. It started in my basement. It was in a popcorn tin that was about waist high. And we bought a commercial sous vide and put it down into the pot. And we connected it to this kind of PVC pipe arm with a cooling coil inside. You know, it was Walter White kind of stuff here. <laughs> you know, we we ended up buying bulk old forester and trying to gently just dealkalize it and, and see what would happen. And there's been many learnings and many kind of continued innovations since then. But that was the moment that Spiritless was born. And of course, the, the product that you most recently tried, that was Kentucky 74, which is our non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails. Is anybody doing reverse distillation? How did you figure out how to do this process that basically removes the ethanol? Yeah, you know, listen, there's there's been people that have been dealkalizing for a really long time, right? And so it happens in a very basic way on your kitchen stove um, as you as you cook, and it can happen in a very kind of specific scientific way, which is the process that we put it through when we're trying to take off just the ethyls and just the esters, right? But what we want to make sure that we hold on to are all those incredible flavor compounds, right? The tannins and the oils and everything from that starter spirit. And, uh, you know, we've been able to, to really wrap our arms around a proprietary process to do that. So we have both a process and an application patent for making non-alcoholic spirits in the U.S., which is really exciting. Not only did the old-fashioned made from their Kentucky 74 taste great, but it looked great, too. I wondered how they were able to achieve the color profile of an authentic, charred, oak-aged Kentucky bourbon without the aging. Instead of the alcohol sitting in a barrel and over four years in that crazy Kentucky weather, right? That barrel expands and contracts and slowly but surely makes that delicious liquid that we know is Kentucky bourbon. What we essentially do is we put the barrel inside the still and we're forcing interaction with that oak just like it would in a barrel, but we do it much more quickly. So in about two and a half hours, we modulate temperature and pressure and highs and lows and extract all of those incredible flavor molecules out of that charred oak. And that is how we get our starter spirit before we move it to our second step, which is when we do the reverse distillation to be able to get the alcohol out of it. 
So the liquid is pH adjusted for shelf stability because this is totally shelf stable, just like any other alcoholic spirit would be. You don't have to refrigerate it. One of the things that we knew for sure was that this needed to, you know, look, walk and talk like a spirit and needed to be able to sit on the back bar, not to have to pull it out of a, of a beer cooler to use it. And, you know, a core component of that is certainly making it shelf stable because obviously when you remove alcohol from any product, uh, you, you lose the stabilization element and certainly open it up to some risk for microbials. The other thing you all accomplished that I'd like you to address is mouthfeel, the texture. That's really hard. And, you know, lots of people who have dabbled in this category use their alcoholless spirit as a topper only because they're relying on the aromatics. But mouthfeel is everything, isn't it? You know, it is a big piece of it. And I think for non-alcoholic spirits in general, and, you know, I would even say this for the category as a whole, you know, ethanol is somewhat of a magical molecule. It has weight to it. It's a congener. It makes flavors meld and kind of dance together. Anytime that you're taking that away, you're going to have a different experience. And I think the important reminder here is that these products are meant to be composed inside of cocktails. They're not meant to be consumed on their own. And you know, when you're taking that point of view and you're saying, okay, certainly the core building blocks, right, to any great cocktail, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of a little bit of sweet, a little bit of bitter, all those things really help kind of bridge the chasm of, you know, what is the delta here on the loss of, you know, mouthfeel viscosity and a variety of things. I do see a, a time in the future where innovation is able to get us to a place that we are drinking these products neat. We're still really focused on making incredible classic cocktails with the building blocks of our distilled non-alcoholic spirits. Well, you're not stopping with this bourbon that you have created. Because one of the things you do is your agave spirit, Jalisco 55. Correct. You know, actually, and Jalisco has, I think, even more heft and mouthfeel than the Kentucky 74 product, which I'm really, really proud of. But again, whenever we're playing with these things and tinkering, uh, you know, in, in the lab and in the flavor room, it's all about making that cocktail. <laughs> You know, the way that I actually, on the weekends, when I'm looking for a little bit of an alcohol experience, but I'm looking to pull back, is I actually blend our product with the foolproof spirit that it's inspired by. So I'm having what we call Havzies cocktails. I'll make my old fashioned with an ounce of Kentucky 74 and an ounce of my favorite bourbon whiskey. It's less than 100 calories. It's half the ABV. You know, I'm in a place where I can have one and don't feel just the enormous impact of, of a big old serving of foolproof spirits. And so it's a great way to kind of have your cake and eat it too. That was Lauren Chitwood, CEO of Spiritless, makers of reverse distilled alcohol-free spirits. You can check them out at spiritless.com and order their products there as well. If you're sober curious, Spiritless is also available in most liquor stores and can be found popping up behind lots of bars, too. 
That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans, scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.